The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet, with Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D. from Soul Matters Ministry in Olympia, Washington. If you'd like to join in the discussion, email us at spiritofrecovery at unity.fm or call into the program with your questions. Now, here's your host, Reverend Anna Schaus. Welcome to the Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet, where we support your spiritual growth in recovery. My name is Anna Schaus, and I'm your host, and I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today. We're very glad that you're listening, and we love getting your comments by email, and uh, love seeing what you post on Facebook. You can find us on Facebook at Spirit of Recovery, and uh, thank you so much for your participation And we are glad that you're letting your friends and the people in your recovery community and your spiritual community know about Spirit of Recovery. It's wonderful to be broadcasting on the topic of recovery here on Unity Online Radio. And we're glad to know that uh, what we're doing is touching your heart and opening your mind. We always have uh, great guests. Our guests are people who are either in recovery themselves, who work with recovering people, who write for recovering people, or sometimes all of the above. And they're always guests who are down to earth, who are knowledgeable and innovative. And um, they're always bringing you practical information that you can use and lively discussions that get you thinking. Know that you can, of course, listen to us live. You can also access the archives at www.unity.fm backslash program backslash spirit of recovery. And you can hear any of our programs and hear what our guests have to say. You can also access spirit of recovery on your mobile listening device. So there are lots of ways now that you can hear the programs that we're bringing to you. We want you to know that Spirit of Recovery is a welcoming place, and if you're a person who's in recovery from any kind of an addiction, or if you're a family member that's in your own recovery as a family member, or a family member or friend of somebody that has the disease of addiction, whether or not they're in recovery, if you're just curious and looking for information, or if you simply uh, want to learn more about the process of recovery, know that we welcome you here and we welcome your participation in our discussions. Again, my name is Anna Schaus, and I'm your Spirit of Recovery host. I'm a Unity minister and a addictions counselor. 
I'm also a person who has in my circle of love and friendship many people with the disease of addiction. And it so happens that today I am celebrating a recovery birthday uh, 31 years ago. I am grateful to say that I um, walked into my recovery process as a family member, and I am so grateful for that. And um, I've been thinking all day today about uh, memories of that time and the great people that have been there for me uh, over the years, and I'm just grateful for that. And so ever since that time, my walk has been an integration of the unity principles and the recovery principles, and that keeps transforming my life in ever deeper ways. So I'm really grateful um, to have the opportunity to share these ideas with you and to hear what you're experiencing in your spirituality and recovery walk. So today, our topic is 21st Century Recovery. And uh, we know that there have been lots of advances in neurobiology and psychology and medicine and even in the field of electronics that through the creation of the social media that have opened up new approaches to recovery. And so today we're going to be looking at what it means uh, to be in recovery in the 21st century. We're going to be uh, teasing with the idea, the question, does that mean that uh, the 12-step programs are obsolete? Does uh, what does it mean? I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I have a great guest here today. It's Dr. Dan Frigo. Uh, Dan is the dean of the Hazelden Graduate School of Addiction Studies, and I am a graduate of that program and uh, was privileged to have him as one of my professors, and it was a wonderful experience. I'm very glad that he's with us today. Uh, Dr. Frigo has a 17-year history of teaching at the graduate level including five years as an associate professor at Hazelden Graduate School. And he uh, has been the dean now since 2010. And he has uh, really put a lot of uh, wonderful energy toward uh, being a champion for continuous educational innovation and improvement in the education of counselors. He has a background also in treating adolescents, and uh, he is an engaging teacher and has been recognized for three excellence in teaching awards at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. He's trained as a clinical social worker and has had an extensive clinical practice and consultation experience with treatment centers, and he certainly brings so much to the classroom and to uh, the position of dean at Hazelden Graduate School. So welcome, Dan. Thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome, Anna, and congratulations on your recovery birthday. And thank, uh, thanks also go to the Unity Online Radio and, of course, the Spirit of Recovery. Great, great missions. Great. Thank you. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Yeah. Well, Dan, I know that you've been um, involved as a clinician for a long time uh, in the treatment and mental health uh, care, and you've also been involved with uh, both, obviously, in giving uh, direct care as well as in consultation and, and development in so many ways of the field. So, how did recovery and treatment used to be back in the old it, days? Yes, well, um, what we, we know that probably before 1939, uh, the, you know, the, with the publication of the big book, that there really wasn't much recovery. There were some um, uh, movements like the Washingtonian Society and the Oxford Group. The Washington, Washingtonian Society was actually aimed at 
um, helping people with alcohol problems, but it had a temperance uh, aspect to it. And, um, and probably because of that and what its mission was, it finally disappeared. It was very popular in its time. And then for those people that know about the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson had a spiritual experience um, and that prior to that experience that happened in Towns Hospital, um, he had been a, a member of the Oxford group. And many of those principles actually influence the development of Alcoholics Anonymous, which Bill and others have acknowledged um, over time. And, you know, the history of the big book itself and how it came to be is quite uh, fascinating and um, illustrative of um, maybe the spiritual principles that affected Bill so tremendously that at moments when he... Um, you know, had everything going against them in the publishing of this book, it prevailed. And so from that point, it was mostly self-help, um, psychiatry, psychology, social work, all had failed miserably in treating people with alcohol and other drug problems. Um, and so in late 1940s, um, Dan Anderson... Uh, went to uh, Wilmer State Hospital and there started the Minnesota model as everybody understands it. And then, which is essentially, um, he was the first person ever to ask for a professional counselor, uh, a recovering person to serve as uh, a counselor. Um, he noticed right away that people were getting well that were not getting well. Uh, when AA was invited into the treatment center. So, and then over the years, um, and, and Dan Anderson's other contribution was the idea of an interdisciplinary approach to solving, uh, or not solving, but helping people, because there is no solution per se, um, um, find recovery by having um, medical, uh, psychological, and counseling for addiction, he formed the idea of the team approach. But even then, throughout the 60s, probably the 70s, even into the 80s, um, the lead person in the Minnesota model was um, the alcohol and drug counselor, the person whose credential was his or her own recovery from the disease. Um, in the 70s, with all the federal funding and the, in, you know, Hazelden itself began in 1949 and by the 70s was recognized as a leading treatment center for addiction. And, um, but federal funding um, based on the recognition that this problem could be treated um, helped educate counselors. So, for instance, to get, get a feel for how the field is changing, um, when I came to the Hazelden Graduate School of Addiction Studies in 2005, 
the requirement, the educational requirement in Minnesota to be a licensed alcohol and drug counselor was an associate arts degree. And in 2007, it changed to a bachelor's degree. And yesterday, I received an email from a person um, that serves on a consortium of graduate schools in the area and other schools indicating that Minnesota is likely to move to a tiered licensing system um, that you one would see, for instance, with social work and other helping disciplines where there are bachelor-level licensed people and master's level. So, um, and in the last maybe, I'd say, 15 years, there's been a recognition that people who have addiction also have other mental health problems like depression or trauma or anxiety disorders. And so the, the field, many think, is moving toward integration of mental health and addiction. I can remember when I started my career in 1978, 79, um, that mental health um, practitioners and what was then called chemical dependency, um, the chemical dependency field really didn't, work well together, and the historical basis for that was there was resentment about, and this is a loose generalization of the history that deserves more precision than I'm giving it at the moment, um, but essentially what happened is that addicts were not good patients for people who practice psychoanalysis or psychological approaches, and... Um, and so, and if they were treated in the medical establishment, they were usually given um, prescriptions that actually exacerbated uh, their addiction or created other dependencies. Um, so I can remember very distinctly in the late 80s doing training with alcohol and drug counselors about how to approach treating mental health problems and people who were taking uh, prescribed um, psychotropics for their mental health problem. So it's really come a long way in many ways. And mm -hmm. I will pause and let you ask a question or maybe I can clarify one of the points I made. That's a lot. I mean, I covered a lot of history, like 100 years in just a few moments. That was good. That was a, a yeah. very. It, it was great. It was a great summary. Yeah. I one thing you know it that strikes me in the beginning, and and you sort of just just said it really about what's happening more in the current day, is that mm -hmm. the initially the problem was as you said that the medical establishment. This is back in the eighteen hundreds, and I'm sure for thousands of years before that, they couldn't mm -hmm. solve they couldn't solve the problem. They right. Couldn't, they couldn't help addicts. Yeah. They didn't know what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like it created that, as you said, that unique environment when Dan Anderson, and he was a psychologist. Is that accurate? Yep. I'm not sure. That, no, you're uh, right. He was. Yeah. That he he probably, I don't know, how did his colleagues feel when he brought in, I guess, I don't know if at that point they were calling them 
paraprofessionals or what they were yeah, telling them, no. but the recovering people. What was the reaction of the medical field? Well, I, I don't know the, the history in terms of what is written, but what I have heard um, from people who were close to Dr. Anderson is that he encountered resistance. In fact, he, recount, he encountered resistance when he came to Hazelden. Um, Hazelden was originally, as I understand, set out to be a treatment center for Catholic clergy is what, what I had understood to be its basis. Now, I, I might be wrong about it being Catholic clergy, um, and they really struggled at the beginning, and I'm not sure, but Dr. Anderson might have been asked to come and help make it viable, and then they decided to open it up to professional people and other people who needed help with addiction. But the interesting thing about this story, and this tells you how ancient I am because I know both sides of the story, actually. Um, Earlier in my career, I consulted at a treatment center in South Dakota that was run by the widow uh, her name was Mitzi Carroll of Lynn Carroll, who was the first counselor at Hazelden. Hmm. And when Dan Anderson came and suggested that they add professional staff, psychologists, medical doctors, um, Lynn Carroll had a very strong reaction to that. Um, because, because he was he a was, uh, Recovering person, is that accurate? He was. He was a lawyer by training but had found recovery early and was, um, you know, he saw um, the 12 steps and having a recovering person working with people in recovery as the way the treatment was done. And Dr. Anderson was suggesting that this is an emotional, spiritual um, and psychological illness, and you needed these other aspects addressed by specific um, professionals. You know, not that Lynn certainly didn't appreciate and value the spiritual aspects, because that's what AA is. It's a spiritual program. Um, but Anderson wanted to add in clergy and psychologists, and they had a huge battle about this, Anderson won that battle. Lynn went elsewhere and actually started the Keystone Treatment Center in South Dakota, where I ended up some years later um, working with Mitzi. And it was an interesting, we could say coincidence, that might not be perfectly right, but so there was resistance not only to Anderson wanting addicts to work with addicts from people who were members are part of the, um, you know, the state system, the bureaucracy of mental health and alcohol and drug care then. But it was also the other way, too. It was, there was resistance to letting other professionals treat this problem because of, um, you know, failing really to help and maybe making matters worse at one point. Great. We're going to time, have a short break. Uh, we'll be oh, right back right. and continue this Alrighty. conversation. So listeners, stay with us.
Our goal at Unity Online Radio is to continue expanding our spiritual programming and growing our listening audience. To help us become an ever stronger voice in today's world, we ask for your support. Please visit www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. Thank you. wellness expert, Dr. Michelle Robin on healthy living. In the game of wellness, there's some basic habits that you need to embrace in order to live a well life. In her book, Wellness on a Shoestring, Robin shows you that complete wellness of body, mind, and spirit doesn't have to cost a fortune. Client Eddie Penrice turned his health around with Dr. Robin's seven habits for a healthy life. I've got to say my body just embraced the change. Besides feeling better, looking better, thinking more clearly. Many of Robin's seven habits for a healthy life are simple and free. She offers tips and shares real stories from clients like Eddie, who've incorporated the habits into their lives and seen the results. You can make this change by being convicted that you will do it. That you don't need anyone else's assistance or help to do it. Make this the year you get healthy. Discover a low-cost, attainable path to feeling better than ever. Order wellness on a shoestring today at www.shopunity.org. Unity Online Radio is turning five this year, and we're throwing the biggest bash of all, a cruise to the Caribbean. November 10 through 17, 2012, we'll celebrate in style aboard Holland America Line's Eurodam with sunshine, fine dining, and a selection of island excursions at beautiful ports of call in the Eastern Caribbean. Plus, feed your spirit with music, message, and meditation. Your favorite hosts will be there, and we hope you will join us too as we celebrate five years of spiritual programming at Unity Online Radio. For more information, visit www.unity.fm forward slash cruise. You're listening to Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet with Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D., If you'd like to share your questions, comments, and experience with today's topics, call us now or email us at spiritofrecovery at unity.fm. We now return to Spirit of Recovery. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. We're very glad that you're with us today. And if you're just joining us, our topic is 21st Century Recovery. And my guest is Dr. Dan Frigo. Dan is the dean at the Hazelden Graduate School of Addiction Studies, and he has a 17-year history of teaching at the graduate level. Dan has also been involved uh, since 1978 in active work with people in the recovery uh, community he, as a professional and, as an, and in the mental health field. He has given uh, direct service. He has done a lot of consulting with treatment centers, and he also has spent a lot of time in the classroom. And he's uh, given us a great history here of, of the recovery uh, movement and what's been happening in the field of treatment and what's happening today. So, Dan, thanks so much for all that you're sharing with us. You're welcome, Anna. Happy to speak with you and your audience. 
Well, before the break, we were uh, talking some about that that sort of historic tension between uh, the recovery community and the professional community, and how that's played out. And um, it it I think it does come from that root of early on that nobody seemed to know what to do with people that mm-hmm. had addiction. They you know everybody was frustrated. Um, but then when the the twelve step program came along, that that was productive and. W- offered an avenue of help and and since that time there's been a, a sort of a working together and sometimes a real tension between um that uh, more spiritual aspect and the professional community so you were talking about how uh in the early days of Hazelden itself some of that was happening and and how that's progressed so where do you uh, where did that go do you think after after those early days um in terms of that relationship, do you think it's deteriorated or gotten better, or how do you see that um, going? Yes. On? Well, in my opinion, I think it certainly has um, moved in a positive direction. Um, you know, for probably the 60s, the 70s, and maybe a good chunk of the 80s, I think that tension was still there. Um, in fact, some people will argue that you can see this in the way the federal bureaucracy is structured. There was the National Institute on Drug Abuse and, you know, the National, um, um, I'm blocking on, on, on it, the National um, Associ- uh, Alcohol and Drug Administration. There were separate approaches for drug and alcohol, and then there was a separate one for mental health. So there wasn't this sense of integration. Um, some people will say that, um, and it varies uh, on the study you look at, but most people would minimally accept that a third of the people that have alcohol and drug problems also have a problem with depression, anxiety, or another men- mentally um, diagnosable problem. And, and then the opposite is true, that people who have mental health problems, about a third of them or more, many people think it's more, um, have a problem with alcohol and drugs. So um, I think the recognition of this and certain economics come into play, it's always a, um, you know, a strange a mixture of economics, social problems, and, and psychological that help people to come, and real, to, come to realize that, um, that an integrated approach to treatment is what's important. Um, it's, it's been hard to teach this when I was a doctoral student in in the late 70s, early 80s, um, you know, I was reading research where people were arguing that people with late-stage chronic alcoholism could be taught to drink socially. I think now it's pretty well regarded that abstinence is the approach that has the greatest efficacy. There might be different roads to abstinence, um, but that um, the hope of returning to any kind of 
um, social or moderated use of alcohol or other drugs is a mirage. That's a quote, actually, um, from a writer in the field. So I don't think anyone um, uh, who, certainly in the chemical dependency side of the profession, but in mental health also would um, encourage somebody with with dependence um, to use alcohol or I hope any other drug. Mm-hmm. What uh, One thing that has certainly happened over the years is there's been a lot of research in, in terms of the, what the causes of yes. addiction. What, what's the latest research say about what causes it? Well, you know, interestingly, <laughs> the etiology, which is the cause of addiction, is still unknown. What is known if you have a parent or a family member um, that is um, alcoholic, we'll just stay with alcohol, that you have a three to four times greater chance of having um, a problem with alcohol. Um, And this is a finding that recurs over and over again, which argues for the genetic basis for addiction. But I'm reminded of what Dr. Silkworth, one of the early medical doctors who worked with Bill W. said, is that it's more than a medical problem. It's not only a medical problem. It's a spiritual problem. And so it's not like a virus can be found or people can say with absolute certainty that this gene causes it. And even if a gene did cause the problem, it doesn't mean that you treat the gene, at least not at this point in time. Uh, A genetic predisposition doesn't mean that um, people cannot be treated for, for the issue with psychological, spiritual, um, psychotherapeutic means. But um, there's all kinds of interesting theories, cultural theories. Some cultures drink more than others, and a premium is placed on drinking behavior. Uh, There's some economic evidence that suggests that drinking can... Now, this isn't true for addicts, but it is for people who... Uh, drink but don't drink dependently or have a problem with it. If you control how much you tax alcohol, uh, consumption goes down. That is the use of alcohol. I'm not talking about, again, people who want to drink and need to drink because they're dependent will drink anyway. So there's a lot of um, different factors that influence drinking from culture to psychological to spiritual to economic. So the end result is there's still a big X factor. You know, what is it? And even though there might be drugs that can be given that reduce craving uh, or even make people sick, there is no cure for addiction. It is still a chronic uh, problem that requires lifelong attention um, through recovery and through, uh, I I believe, the 12 steps. So, um, you know, there may be people that that abstain 
and do not have, as your audience might understand, a program of recovery, um, but um, but it is a problem that can be treated even though we don't know the cause. And there are other illnesses that are the same way. We may not know the etiology, the specific mechanism, but we know that we can treat it. So, um, and that's the sad thing, actually, just to make a statement here that I think is is important to make. In the next year and, and last year, it's been a number that's been constant now for many years. There are 22 million people that will meet the criteria for dependence, alcohol and illicit drugs, 22 million people, but only, and I'm giving you government statistics, only about 11 point, it's either 11.9 or 11.7, I can't remember, but it's 11%, let's say almost 12% of those people will actually receive treatment services that are specialized to help with addiction. So it is a grossly undertreated problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but treatment is available. Cause remains unknown. Um, but there is more and more information through neuroscience, genetics, that shows people who have dependencies react differently um, to certain chemicals than people who don't have those problems. So. I, I personally think there is definitely some kind of uh, neurological genetic influence that affects use, um, and that may be well and good. But the question is, what about how does how do people find their way in the recovery? And there, um, it's the psychosocial interventions that help that including um, the 12 steps, as many people know them. Right. What's happening now, um, Dan, in the treatment field and, and the working with the 12 steps and so forth, to it's using these, the things that are being discovered to uh, enhance treatment, to help people stay in recovery, to help them stay on that road? Yeah, that's a great question, and and there are several different ways to answer it. There are all these new drugs that are being developed that help with cravings and don't provide um, like an alternative high. Now, there are, and, and, and this is another debate that's going on, is somebody, for instance, and I know some people will squirm when they hear this. It's a tough one for me. Um, who are on buprenorphine or methadone maintenance, uh, are they in recovery um, because they're not using opiates? Um, and uh, not long ago I attended a conference where this was debated, and I think there are um, definite um, positions about this. Um, so there's that issue. The other issue is that there are evidence-based, that means to, I mean to say there are researched um, interventions, methods of therapy that work with addictions. And those are, you know, like behavioral methods like um, contingency management, cognitive behavioral therapy, motivational enhancement therapy, 
And I think those efforts to show those, uh, the effectiveness of those will only continue and others will be shown to be effective as well. In reality, every treatment center does a little bit of all of it. If it's a 12-step based treatment program, it's rarely, purely, only 12-step. People are given assignments, they're given homework. You can even call some of that bibliotherapy. You can call it narrative therapy. Um, So reality therapy, all of these are methods used to treat addiction. And there is evidence, that's the sad point here, that treatment is effective. Um, The issue is getting people, getting insurance companies to recognize that um, that money spent to treat addiction and the government um, in the end actually saves money um, by making people more productive, returning them to their jobs, um, you know, putting fewer people in prison, you know, half the people in prison, uh, 50%. Some studies say or more are there for a drug or alcohol-related reason. It's not that they are pushers and users necessarily. I mean, not um, dealers or pushers, but they're users. There are people who have committed crimes while under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Um, So there are increasingly... Science is showing, social science is showing, and some medical science is showing that there are methods, there are ways along with the 12 steps to treat addiction and that there's very real hope for treatment. It's not just an idea. It's not only a belief, but there is evidence that treatment is effective. Right. Some of the evidence shows, I think, that um, the longer people are engaged with recovery ideas, with people in recovery, with treatment modalities and so forth, the better chance they have. Tell us about Absolutely. that or exactly how that works. Well, because there, it's a chronic uh, illness. I just read a paper and I'm doing a research project with one of the researchers in uh, Hazelden's Butler Center for Research looking at how do people end up in residential and outpatient treatment and which form of treatment, residential meaning that they come, they stay, they live at a treatment center uh, anywhere from two weeks to a month and outpatient meaning that People go to work during the day and go to a program in the evening, uh, experience education, maybe group therapy. And there is evidence that both forms of treatment work. The paper I was reading specifically indicated that, um, that addiction is a chronic illness that requires ongoing recovery. And people who are engaged in recovery, in other words, who keep going to their meetings, getting therapy, whatever form it is, um, have better outcomes. They stay, they remain abstinent. They report higher rates of life satisfaction. 
Um, they're working. They're doing all the things that people would hope that people with addiction would end up doing if they receive treatment. The problem is, you know, there's a clinical problem of keeping people engaged in treatment because of denial and minimization of the person about his or her disease. And then there's also um, what I would say is um, an economic social issue about, get, you know, um, providing payment for those services. So, um, but I think it's very clear, very well understood that people who stay and re- stay involved and actively participate in recovery will most likely do better than those who have less treatment. That's great. Thank you. It's time for our next break. We'll be right back. Okay. Listeners, stay with us, and we'll have some more uh, thoughts about the 21st century recovery. Hi, my name is Lynn Twist. I'm the author of The Soul of Money. If you're struggling right now with a financial crisis, I recommend going to www.unityfm and listening to our course about the soul of money and how to handle this in a way that brings out the deep spirituality that's available at this time. You know, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Join author Lynn Twist for The Blessing of the Financial Crisis. You'll learn new techniques to use the current economic situation to redefine your relationship with money. It's available now for immediate download at unity.fm in the video download section. Have you ever considered that everything you think and say is a prayer to the universe? Are you sending a positive or negative message? Join Rev. Beverly Molander and her guest on Affirmative Prayer, Activating the Power of Yes, to find out how you can activate your own power of yes. Using affirmative prayer, or positive intention, can make a big difference in the way you think, feel, and live. If you want help moving from chaos to clarity, in relationships, health, prosperity, or work, this is the place for you. We'll have some how-to suggestions about how you can say yes more often from this point forward. Talk with Beverly Molander and her guest live every Monday at noon central or 1 p.m. Eastern. Affirmative Prayer, activating the power of yes. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Listening to Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet with Reverend Anna Schaus, PhD. If you have a question, comment, or experience with today's topic you'd like to share, call us now or email us at spiritofrecovery at unity.fm. We now return to Spirit of Recovery. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. We're very glad that you're with us today. And if you're just joining us, our topic is 21st Century Recovery. And my guest is Dr. Dan Frigo. 
Dan is the Dean of the Hazelden Graduate School of Addiction Studies. He has a long history of teaching at the graduate level, and he has uh, many years of direct experience in, as a provider of addiction treatment and mental health treatment. He um, is trained as a clinical social worker, and he also has extensive experience uh, with consulting with uh, treatment centers and um, with the education of counselors. So uh, before the break, Dan, you were talking with us about the uh, importance of, of treatment and how it really does work if people can mm-hmm. get can get there. Um, mm-hmm. What are some of the ways that I know that uh, technology is really being used in terms of yeah. social media? Tell us about that, how that's working today as part of recovery. Well, yes, more and more um, for people who have smartphones, there are actually downloads of the big book. There are meditation books, and these are great resources for people who uh, might not have time in in the morning uh, to sit down and read their book or take their meditation book or the big book with them. They can look on their phone while they're waiting for an, appoint- an appointment or even standing in line at the store. I know that Hazelden has invested a great deal of energy into development of what they call their MORE program, which means more recovery, where there can be, uh, where one can go online, um, get meditation readings, talk to a recovery counselor, or, or, you know, not literally talk, although that's possible too, um, belong to chat groups. Um, it's certainly the way of the future in terms of reaching a greater audience and supporting people who are in recovery either as an addict or as the partner or significant other or family member of somebody who has the disease. And um, I, 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 for one, personally believe that more and more resources will be online or in the form of e-books. Um, so it's, a, it's an important part of the program here at Hazelden, which, as some of your listeners may know, or many of them may know, Hazelden is in Center City, Minnesota. There are there are other programs across the country, but people come here from places all over the country, all over the world. And so, when they go back to their home city, how do they continue with what they've learned and experienced here? Well, one way to do that is online, and it holds a lot of promise, I think, for supplementing. In my mind, there's no shortcut i mean there's no substitute for attending meetings um but this certainly can augment what people are doing in their personal recovery by going to meetings seeing a therapist um whatever seeing a psychiatrist whatever helps them um in their journey with recovery mm-hmm. what about the spiritual aspect obviously the 12 steps are 
really grounded. They are a spiritual program. So with the science, you know, so often it seems like there's been a, at least in this Western culture, a, a yeah. enmity, it seems like, between science and spirituality. But is there really, yeah. or how do you see that working today in the 21st century? Well, you know, it saddens me that people want to biafricate, you know, science and spirituality. Um, I think that in what we try to work, uh, uh, what we try to help our students see at the school, it's about integration, that people aren't just organisms that need chemicals to survive. And I think that that would be a misplaced emphasis of, of effort if only the medical is addressed. And I would hope that people could, in however and in whatever way they understand, that when we're talking about people, we're not talking about a limited part of their experience or being. And that uh, I think the best treatment centers will always address um, all aspects of the disease. As one of the people here that works as clergy says, the first thing to go is the spiritual and the last thing to return is the spiritual as far as recovery goes. Um, I think the best thinkers on this are people that um, look at integration. They don't uh, force this kind of reductionism that it's just this or only this. Um, I think it, for most of us, we ask important questions to ourselves, like what is the meaning of my life? What is my um, mission in life? What is truth? And how do I serve my truth? And how do I respect and honor the truth of others? Well, those aren't quantifiable um, constructs. And um, so I think that it is not uh, that science and spirituality are not mutually exclusive, but that um, there's this unity that's there if one is willing to see it. You know, um, they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, what I've heard is, you know, no contempt prior to investigation. And people that are really advanced in their thinking and understanding uh, will look for the truth, which I think ultimately has to be integration. Mm-hmm. That would how be, are you? Go ahead. How are you training counselors in that? Obviously, you're very involved in counselor training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How are you doing that with for the 21st well, century? Yeah. Well, we we teach evidence based methods. They work in the clinic here at Hazelden and in their first two semesters, and go offsite usually their third semester, and um, so they see that here now. This is, um, and, and you know, this points out a problem essentially, because most programs prepare people. I, I would hope, in the first instance, to be critical, analytical thinkers. That would be the best goal. 
But the other part of it is the practical part. People come to a program like ours to become professional counselors, which means licensure. Um, and increasingly, it will mean that. So we teach um, courses that help them become professionals and to obtain licensure. Um, we have in our program um, uh, members of the um, spiritual staff, the clergy staff, that come in and lecture about spirituality in treatment. And um, there are any number of programs in the community that are more faith-based, such as the Salvation Army, uh, where people can go and do placements, clinical placements, as part of their education. Um, I think all graduate programs, I still am a visiting professor at Washington University in St. Louis in the graduate program of social work, and I think that there certainly could be more coursework on the role of spirituality in people's lives. I know that this is um, researched here at Hazelden. It's researched at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, but I think so much more could be done to help prepare professional counselors um, to appreciate and better understand the role of spirituality in whatever um, the issue is, addiction, mental illness, um, chronic health problems. So um, it's certainly recognized as a valuable and critical part of people's treatment here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, how are today's uh, students, how do you think that they're different or the same as uh, people that were preparing to be addiction counselors mm-hmm. in the past? Well, they are different. They are, we're almost bimodal with male and female. We have slightly more females, and the projection in the field is that it will be largely female, more non-recovery. In other words, more people without their own personal recovery. Um, At our school, about 60% of our students are in recovery from an addiction. Um, and the, the people who study what fields need um, are indicating that in addiction, increasingly higher levels of education will be needed. It will probably be more um, females, and there is a need because the people being treated will have be more culturally diverse. There is... Um, a need for teaching multicultural aspects of treatment and addiction in programs. And indeed, most states that have licensure will require people to take continuing education hours in multiculturalism, working with more diverse populations. That's the way of the future. So it's very different from when Dan Anderson and Lynn Carroll started uh, working at Hazelden in that it was essentially male, it was essentially a former addict, 
not to say that the recovery aspect won't be there, but the other part will probably grow in order to answer the need for counselors. It's one of the fastest growing uh, specialty counseling specialties, and anyone can see this for himself or herself if he or she goes to the Department of Labor and checks out the occupational handbook that it's um, an area of counseling and treatment that needs more people to work in it. Dan, thank you so much. Unfortunately, our time is up, but I appreciate all that you shared with us today. You have such a rich background, and um, thank you so much for talking with us today, and thank you so much for the work that you're doing in the field of recovery. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Anna, and thank you for all the good work that you do and the Unity Radio Network is doing, and certainly and most definitely the spirit of recovery. What a wonderful way to reach people who are hungry for help and want to grow um, spiritually um, to be the best people they can be. It's a wonderful thing. Thank you. I'm honored that I could be a participant. You're welcome, and God bless. And listeners, join us next week. Our topic is When the Problem Just Won't Go Away, and we'll be interviewing Dr. Leslie Ehlers, uh, who is a physician experienced in addiction medicine, and she's going to be sharing with us about the body-mind-spirit connection. God bless, and have a wonderful week. Thank you for tuning in to Spirit of Recovery with Rev. Anna Schaus, Ph.D., and her guests. Join Anna and her guests live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central, 2 p.m. Pacific for down-to-earth ideas on keeping spirituality in the heart of your recovery. Spirit of Recovery, only on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. This program is brought to you in part by Soul Matters Ministry in Olympia, Washington, committed to bringing light to the soul. Online at www.soulmatters-spiritworks.org. undervalued, disconnected, or simply overwhelmed at work or in your business? Are you trying to attract what you need but are desperately worried about cash flow? What if the problems you're experiencing aren't problems at all, but warning signals, clues to redirect? What if those clues are being obscured by your blind spots, the things you can't see that are keeping you from accomplishing your goals? Find out how you can move step-by-step beyond your blind spots each week here with Karen Pettigrew, Wednesday mornings at 9 Central Time on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. In quiet moments of prayer, let go of any concern. Anchor your trust deep in the realization that with God all things are possible. Never doubt it for a single moment. This meditative moment is brought to you by Unity.
Starting a business is a leap of faith. Growing a business is an act of courage. Staying true to your calling while navigating the challenges of business ownership is nothing short of a miracle. Whether you're a lifelong entrepreneur or you're just now getting the itch to hang up your shingle, the Spiritual Entrepreneur will help you create miracles in your business. Hosted by spiritual mentor and business coach, Mindy Odlin, you'll learn spiritually focused business strategies to help you experience prosperity from the inside out. Mark your calendar and join Mindy live every Monday at 5 p.m. Central for The Spiritual Entrepreneur, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. We talk to the animals and we know you can too. On the Animal Communication Podcast hosted by the three of us, myself, Julie Heert, Karen Dendy-Smith, and Meredith Tolleson. We will show you how to deepen your relationship with your beloved animal companions, whether they're alive or in spirit. As soul-level animal communicators, we explain the process and explore topics such as health, behavior, and play, all from the animal's perspective. So subscribe and follow us on Apple, Spotify, and listen as part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.